Hi, I'm Courtney. And I'm Patrick. And this is our True Crime Podcast. Evil Pudding. We are a husband and wife duo. I'm ex-military and law enforcement. And I'm a true crime professional fanatic. And we will, together <laughs> will cover the most depraved and most shocking offenders and events that you probably have ever heard of. That's right. Only the most evil are covered here. So join us once a week. As we serve up some evil pudding. Hi guys, before we start today's episode, we just wanted to do a quick little reminder about a giveaway that we're doing. For our 50th episode, which will be on December the 30th, we are having a giveaway for the True Crime Bee and Beanie and some stickers. Yes. The ways that you can enter our giveaway are... First, if you leave or have already left a review on Apple, we would appreciate that. And then just send us your name on Instagram or in our email. We just need to have a way to get a hold of you so that if you win, we can reach out to you and ask for your address. Mm -hmm. A review on Apple. Or if you don't have access to leaving an... I know not everyone has Apple Podcasts. Mm -hmm. So if you can't leave a review there... You could send us an email that tells us a story about the funniest or the strangest or the worst thing that's happened to you recently. Or you can just say, look, guys, I'm so freaking exhausted. Please enter me in your contest. Yeah, just shoot us an email with your name and we will put you in the little drawing hat and let you know from there. And if you win, (laughs) we will reach out to you for your address. Yay! So if you've already left a review on Apple and you would like to be in the giveaway, please message us on Instagram or email so we can get your address if you win. And that email is truecrimebnbpod at gmail.com. Correcto. All right, back to our regularly scheduled nonsense. Yay! Hi, guys. Here we are. We're breaking in as if we weren't just talking to you. (laughs) New day. And Um, it's now episode 48. Wow, we're getting up there. We are getting old. Okay. So today is a regular day. Mm -hmm. I'm Beth. And I'm Bailey. And you're bad and I'm good. Yep. I'm going to tell you about both a murder and a suspicious death. So it's a twofer. You sound really too happy about that. Yeah, it's kind of... You'll see at the end. Okay, a murder and a suspicious death. Mm-hmm. All right. Tina Marcotte was born in Manchester, New Hampshire on December 13th, 1963. By 1994, she was now living in South Dakota with her long-term boyfriend and their three children. Her boyfriend was named Patrick, and they had been together since she was 19 years old, and in 1994, she's 30 at this point. Okay. They were currently living in Rapid City, South Dakota, and both Tina and her boyfriend Patrick worked at a wood processing plant called Black Hills Molding. All right. Early in the morning of June 24th, 1994, Tina finished her shift at 12.30 a.m. and was set to go home. She had driven herself, so she was going to get in the car, go home to her family. However, when she got out to her car in the parking lot, she discovered that one of her tires, the driver's side front tire, was completely flat. And she did not have a spare on her at that time. So what she did is she walked back towards the building that she had previously been working in and called from a payphone her best friend named Vicky. While on the phone with Vicky, Tina explained to her that her car tire had blown or something. She didn't know what had happened, but she didn't want to call her husband. Her children were asleep and they didn't have cell phones, so it would wake up the whole house if she called him. Right, and he couldn't exactly leave with all the kids sleeping anyway. True, he'd have to pack everyone up to go at yeah. middle of the night. So Vicky, who had also been sleeping, told her, okay, well that's fine, I'll get up, get dressed, wake myself up for a second, and I'll be there in like 15 minutes to come pick you up. 
What is the time again? 12.30 a.m. Okay. Vicky's agreed at this point, and just as the girls are about to hang up, Tina says, wait a second, wait a second, before you go, somebody just pulled in in front of my workplace. I'm going to leave the phone hanging off the payphone and go talk to them and see if it's one of my coworkers, and maybe they can give me a ride home, so hold that thought. So she leaves the payphone, goes and speaks to the person in the vehicle, and then immediately comes back, and Tina explains to Vicky, never mind my coworker Tom, who she's been hanging out with before, they're friends. She says, Tom just pulled up, he said he can give me a ride home, so never mind, disregard, go back to bed. So Vicky went ahead, hung up the phone, and went back to sleep, as per usual. Mm-hmm. This Tom, Tom Keeter, at this time was 29 years old, so he's about the same age as Tina. He had a wife named Nancy and two kids at home with her. He was a professional forklift driver, and Tom had worked for several companies in the area. It sounds like he kind of traveled from site to site, whichever company needed the forklift driver for the day. Okay. He's a traveling forklift man. Mm -hmm. And he had previously also worked at Black Hills Molding, which is how he knew Tina. By Saturday morning, so she last spoke to her friend on the phone, 12.30 a.m. on Friday morning. By Saturday morning, Vicky noticed that she hadn't heard from Tina since that phone call, and so she called her house to try to see, hey, did you get home safe? Everything good? And nobody was answering. So Vicky decided to call Tom and say, I know you were giving her a ride home. She got in safe, right? And Tom told her, I never saw her Friday. I didn't give her a ride. Maybe you're confused. Maybe you heard the wrong name. I don't know. But I was not there that night. Interesting. "Mm -hmm." A few hours later, Tom showed up with Tina's boyfriend, Patrick. So they somehow met up outside of this. And they showed up at Vicky's house to say, okay, now we're all concerned. We haven't heard from Tina either. And let's get down to what we know happened. So they're all kind of going together about what do you know, what was the last thing you heard, all this stuff. When Vicky mentioned that Tina had said that night on the phone that Tom had just pulled up and was giving her a ride home, Tom immediately got defensive and started getting upset and arguing with her about, no, you heard it wrong. It had to be somebody else. It wasn't me. Finally, Patrick, who's been silent this whole time listening to everybody's side of the story, kind of pulled Tom to the side and said, look. My girlfriend of 11 years, the mother of my children, is missing. Are you guys having an affair? If you guys were messing around, I don't give a shit right now. What matters is the woman I love is missing. And my kid's mom. Mm Mm-hmm. We need to know what's happened to her and then all the petty bullshit we can deal with later. And so he straight up man-to-man was like, just tell me if you gave her a ride home or not. And Tom said, no, we haven't been having an affair. None of that's going on. I really don't know anything that happened. They said, fine, and all three went down to the police station that Saturday morning and reported her missing officially. Okay. It's not only about what Tina's boyfriend thinks, it's about what Tom's wife might think. Mm -hmm. So that doesn't mean he's telling the truth, just because he was given an out to say it. Not to mention, even if he did mess around with her and then drop her off at home, now he's strongly implicated, and if she didn't get home safe. (laughs) Yeah. So... There's a lot of reasons why he would lie about that, but he continued to say he had nothing to do with it. Okay. After the police got the report, they started looking into it. They went back to the parking lot at her work and saw that her car was still there. They discovered that the tire that she had told her friend was popped actually had been slashed with a knife. And it was interesting to me that it was the driver's side front tire, because it seems like in the dark, I might not notice if a tire of mine was low on gas. That's not right. Air? (laughs) If it was low on air. (laughs) Yeah, but it seems like they did that specifically so she would see that before getting into the car and stop her from going home. So, just to say. 
So that also confirmed to the police that Vicky probably actually had spoken to Tina that night and that what she had told her was probably factual, that she had seen Tom and he agreed to give her a ride. And so they decided to go ahead and talk to Tom. Sure. He went right in and talked to them. He told them that he had been at a softball game the night before Tina disappeared and then around 11 p.m. he had started driving back home. However, it seems that during that drive home, his car had broken down behind the local grocery store, so nobody would see him on the main road. That's why nobody saw him that night. Mm -hmm. And he claims that he had spent somewhere between three to four hours there in the dark trying to fix his engine and carburetor until he got it to work again. Interesting, because if you break down at 11 and then for four hours you're fixing your car behind a grocery store, that would probably get you home at about the same time as you would get home if you murdered somebody at 1230. Funny how that works, isn't it? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Hmm. That's interesting. And he said, well, I was there for three to four hours. Maybe somebody saw me. I don't know. Probably not because I was behind a grocery store. Mm -hmm. Finally, I got home at 330 a.m. and he said, ask my wife. She can confirm that. Which is what I just said. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Tom, I'm not buying your story right now. I need more information to buy your story. The police decided to speak to Tom's wife, and she did confirm that side of the story. But to be fair, she didn't really know anything except, yeah, he got home at 3.30. He never called me at any point to say he was going to be late, but I don't know. Well, I mean, yeah, that would have been nice Mm -hmm. to call her and say, hey, I'm going to be home in four hours instead of I'm almost home now. Yeah. And... Just because that's when he got home doesn't mean that's what he was doing that time. Yeah, and she told them, she firmly still to this day believes his story 100% that that's what he was doing. But it might be denial. It probably is, you know. Yeah. I know. So she said, yeah, he got home at 3.30 a.m. I was still awake because I was worried about him. And he came in the door, told me all the car trouble, and he immediately jumped in the shower. <laughs> Wow. He jumped in the shower. Not only that. Got to get that pesky DNA off of me. He also took off the softball uniform he had been wearing to that game and started soaking it to get the grease out from the car. Mm-hmm. The and grease and the grass stains. Yeah. She kind of, like, sold him out without even knowing. Being like, oh, yeah, he was, it was totally innocent. He got home and washed the grease right out of his clothes. He was such a responsible boy, that Tom. Oh, my <laughs> like, God. <fuck's> sake. <laughs> oh, my God. Anyway. After they got Tom's wife's statements on Monday, so she went missing Friday morning, finally on Monday, the police went to Tom's current job site and confronted him and told him, you are a suspect, your wife has given us permission to go into your car, and we have swabbed what appears to be blood in the back seat. And just so you know, we don't have a warrant to arrest you yet, but you need to stay in town because once that DNA comes back, we need to know where you are. So that was Monday when they went to his job site. On Tuesday, June 28th, only four days after she had gone missing, at 8.30 a.m., two workers arrived to start their day at the same site that Tom had been working at. They discovered Tom dead from what appeared to be a workplace accident. And this is... Interesting. I was telling you, this gets kind of gruesome. Okay. He was a forklift driver, and he had been operating his forklift the night before all by himself. They didn't have anybody else on the shift overnight with him. Is this the same place that Tina worked, or is this one of his different places? It's the same town, just a different job site. Okay. Mm -hmm. So his forklift had seemingly rolled backwards, carrying one ton of materials down an incline, and the back wheel of it had gone over his head, crushing his skull. Holy shit. Ugh. It's not really known. It's ruled a suicide, officially. 
I think there are easier ways to kill yourself. I know. That's the thing. And even OSHA got super involved because, of course, they did. They had to make sure of course they did, somebody yeah. didn't fuck up and forget to turn off the brake or something, you know? Yeah. So they came in and investigated, and everything seemed in working order. It didn't seem like an accident, necessarily. And he'd been doing this for, like, over a decade. He's not a newbie. And not to mention, it seemed like the incline, it would have been going so slowly because it wasn't that steep. That he would have had time to move out of the way unless he was like already unconscious when the head started rolling. So they determined it was a suicide and that he must have gotten scared off from the police the day before confronting him. And even if someone was holding a gun to him and said, you lay down and put your head behind that wheel. Mm-hmm. You have a better chance of if you get shot than if a fork truck rolls over your head. And that's one of the things that so many people are adamant about. Oh, somebody must have put him there. Somebody must have like hit him in the head and put him there, because you wouldn't be able to tell after that went over your head, you That's know? That's true. So, Could have knocked him out. But there are just so many easier ways and more, less violent ways that you can go out and do it yourself without having to yeah. traumatize your work colleagues and, like... Yeah, I have a hard time believing that that was self-harm. I mm-hmm. think it sounds more like somebody would have done it to him. Well, the people that do think it's a suicide said that he likely... That way, his family still got the insurance payout versus if it was an obvious suicide. Yeah. I don't know. That's what they used to defend it, but... Uh, maybe so, but it's still... I don't love anybody enough to lie under a <laughs> forklift and have my ex-skull crushed. I just don't know how you would be able to lay there and let it roll over you. Yeah. I, I mean, just... People do that with trains, though. I can't even get myself to stay still in an MRI machine. I certainly can't lay there yeah, while the a panic. fork truck rolls over my face. Mm-hmm. You'd think just like your self-preservation instincts would kick yeah. in and jump up at last second or something. But I don't know. But yeah. That's, that's all we really know about Tom's death. That's why I like your theory that somebody clunked him on the head, knocked him out, and then put him under totally the fork possible. truck. That yeah. seems more reasonable to me. October 11th, 1995, while moving old scraps in the back of the yard at Forest Productions Distributors, which is the place where Tom's body was found. Okay. A worker discovered, while moving like a big pile of lumber in the back of the yard, another body. After they got that body, they had the police come in and the coroner. They compared the dental records and the clothing, and it was confirmed to be the body of Tina Marcotte. Well... Did they believe that from the decomposition and the amount of it that would be on the ground and things around it, that it had been there that whole time? Yes. So they think that she wasn't murdered there, but she had been placed there pretty much within 24 hours of being murdered. So when she was snatched or whatever he did with her in that 24 hours, but... That's why it was three hours instead of... Mm-hmm. 12 hours, because he didn't go drive five hours into the woods someplace. Bury her somewhere. Yeah, he just disposed of her right across town where he knew nobody would go, because that was a part of the lot that nobody ever used, and they didn't find it till over a year later. Wow, that's, mm-hmm. that's awful. But they did discover she had died from blunt force trauma to the head, and then later on, the blood found on his shoes did come back matching Tina's, so he is officially who did this to her, and we just unfortunately couldn't get justice for her because he was already dead. Yeah. But unfortunately, that's where my story is going to end, because did Tom do it? Probably. Most definitely he did. Yeah, and it's one of those cases where it was certain he was going to get caught because there was nothing about his story that was believable. Mm Mm-hmm. And she had been talking to her friend on the phone and told her friend who she was leaving with. 
So he certainly was going to get caught. Why do these people not see how stupid and fruitless these murders are? They're definitely going to get caught. And they do it anyway. And it's completely a waste of life to Mm -hmm. go kill someone when you are going to get caught. I think he genuinely thought he was going to get away with it. How did he think that? He had no reason to be there. He didn't work at the site anymore. He hadn't for months. And so the only way he was going to ever get caught was if somebody were to find the body before he knew what to do with it. Or if she was on the phone and he didn't account for her being on the phone when he got there. He so knew you her don't schedule. Think he, you don't think he knew that she told somebody that she was leaving with him? Yeah, precisely. He probably didn't know. She went back and said, oh, it's Tom that I work with for months. That Tom. Yeah. So I really do think he thought he got away with it. And then as soon as they started honing in, he had to do something. And this was his fucked up way of solving that. Wow. Don't know. And like you said, his poor wife who believed him, who Mm -hmm. thought he was a decent guy. Mm -hmm. Nope. This one is very similar to the Iowa dietitian. Don't remember her name. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. She was in the hotel. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Slamming us with another unsolved mystery. Well, technically it's solved. We just don't really know what happened to Tom. Yeah. Interesting. Okay, well, I do not have a story about a murder. I have a story about an attempted murder, but not of a person. Okay, that makes me nervous. (laughs) In states like Indiana, Florida, Kansas, Texas, Arkansas, Iowa, there are historic sites that are designated as what are called treaty oaks or council oaks. These were stately oak trees under which treaties were signed and plans were made. There were many of them at one time, and they held great importance in the history of Native Americans and in the negotiations that took place between Native Americans and the Europeans who later came to North America. Okay. The towns that grew up around these important trees were sometimes named to honor these trees. Places like Council Grove, Council Oaks. When you see cities like that, those are probably built around a Council Oak tree. Interesting. Or a Council tree. They may not all have been oaks, but I think most of them were. But they have similar names like that, and they mark locations where these historical trees grew. Most of the actual Council Oak trees are gone. They've been taken by wind or disease, but long since they've been relegated to just a historical site and no longer a living organism. Mm -hmm. The average lifespan of oaks is between 100 and 300 years, depending on the species. But some of the species can live as much as 400 or 600 years under ideal growing conditions. There have even been records of oaks that have lived as long as a thousand years or more. To me, it's humbling to imagine the human development that's taken place Mm -hmm. during the lifespans of some of these magnificent trees. This is going to be such a dumb question. Is it possible to tell the age of a tree without cutting it down? I think that they estimate they don't know until it's cut down. They can't see the rings inside. Yeah, you can't count rings until it's been cut down. But But they do have other ways of estimating, and it's probably based on the height and the breadth of the canopy. Okay, that's cool, though. But as I mentioned, most of the old council oaks are long gone. Austin, Texas was the site of a council oak, or treaty oak, that had begun growing sometime around 1400 CE. Holy shit. Between five and 600 years ago. This Texas live oak tree, that's the species, was sacred to the Tonkawa and Comanche tribes as it had been one of 14 council trees that were used as sacred meeting locations before the influx of Europeans to the area. Mm. Native American legend says that the council oaks were locations for launching wars, for celebrating peace, 
When tribal warriors went off to fight in battle, the women of the tribe would steep a tea from honey and the acorns of the council oak as a ritual to keep their men safe until their return. Other lore suggests that drinking this tea from its acorns or leaves would make one a faithful lover, which is probably the men's idea because, you know, they're like, here, drink this tea, it'll keep me safe. But really they're thinking, drink this tea, it'll keep you faithful. Oh, God. <laughs> By 1927, only one council oak remained in the Austin area and was the Texas live oak tree that was known locally as the Treaty Oak. Popular folklore, completely unsupported by historical documentation, so it's probably just somebody's made-up story, mm -hmm. states that Stephen F. Austin met with local Native Americans to negotiate and sign a peace and boundary treaty. Also, when Sam Houston was thrown out of the governor's office because Texas had become embroiled in the U.S. Civil War, it's said that he went to nurse his wounds in the shade of the Treaty Oak. The Treaty Oak was proclaimed at one time to be Quote, the most perfect specimen of a North American tree. <laughs> this treaty oak was on land that had been privately owned by the Caldwell family since the 1880s, and in 1926, the widow Caldwell put the land up for sale because she couldn't afford to pay property taxes on that land anymore. But she didn't want the tree to be cut down for farmland or development because it's kind of in the middle of the current Austin. Mm -hmm. And she knew that that was going to be built up at some point, and she didn't want them cutting it down. Mm -hmm. Since she didn't want the tree to be cut down, a movement started raising funds through the retelling of the lore surrounding the tree, and by 1937, the city of Austin bought it and installed an honorary plaque supporting its place in state and local history. Over time, the treaty oak, which had grown to over 100 foot of spread, and that's a damn big tree, was deeded the land it stood on. At least I saw in several places that the treaty oak actually owns itself and its own land and that no one could ever have the right to cut it down. But I can't find any confirmation that that's actually true. It might just be more of the lore that surrounds this tree. I love that. I love it too. And I, I hope it's true, but I couldn't find any confirmation <laughs> that like that's I've a fact. I've seen that before though. I have to. In New York or something like that, there's like a tree that you can't touch. Or... Yeah, it owns itself and you don't have the right to touch it. Mm-hmm. Nevertheless, it became symbolic of the growth of Austin and the history of Texas, and it was visited by lovers who became engaged under its shade, families and friends setting up picnics, busloads of school children. It was famous nationally, and it was becoming famous internationally. By March 1989, Austin City Forester John Gadratis was hosting a group of state foresters from around the United States. They were touring Austin City Parks and eventually reached the Treaty Oak. The foresters noticed there was dead grass around the mighty oak tree, and thinking that the grass was just not being properly cared for, the grass was kind of soon forgotten. Until a couple of months later, when the tree began to show symptoms of distress. I feel really strongly about this tree, so if I get I weepy, you just have to forgive me. The leaves appeared to be showing signs of a chemical herbicide. The city dug up some soil samples and took tissue samples from the tree and sent them to a laboratory for analysis. When the results came back, the city discovered that someone had poisoned the tree with an, a hardwood herbicide called Velpar. Velpar was normally used to kill hardwoods on pine plantations and that the amount used was enough to kill 100 oak trees. Jesus Christ. Much like the workers at Chernobyl who in 30 second shifts of removing debris from the roof of the reactor building received enough radiation poisoning in that short amount of time that they were dead before they came in from the roof. Mm -hmm. There was no saving them once they had experienced that. Arborists were declaring similarly that the tree was already dead even though it hadn't died yet. 
The city and the state, and in fact people around the world, were just outraged. They were disgusted and horrified that a person would intentionally kill such a historically important, stately, beautiful tree that was still healthy and growing and thriving after five to six hundred years of life. And I'm just wondering why? What what purpose? That's what they're asking. They're saying what being a dickhead. Like Yeah. Why do people do things like this? People immediately became entranced by the saga of the Treaty Oak. Thousands and thousands of people flocked to see this tree. Children were making get-well cards. People were tying yellow ribbons around the tree. A Native American group held a private ritual because this tree was sacred to them. Yeah. Religious groups prayed and Wiccans performed rituals. Psychics descended upon the area around the tree to perform what they called a transference of energy in the hope that the tree would begin to heal and that the toxins within it would shed out. An entourage of Buddhist monks affiliated with the Dalai Lama came to chant. People buried crystals around the tree. Locals left Tums and Maalox and chicken noodle soup. (laughs) Not the (laughs) Maalox. God, humans are so fucking awful. They're so fucking cute sometimes. (laughs) (laughs) But ultimately, a task force was assembled, consisting of arbor professionals from across the city and across the country. The community rallied in its efforts to save this piece of their history. This was really important to them. Mm -hmm. No precedent could be found as to how to even begin to try to save this tree from such an overwhelming death sentence. As news spread and people became involved, H. Ross Perot was one of the people who felt that this tree murder could not be allowed to happen. Mm -hmm. And he put his money where his mouth was. Perot was a billionaire industrialist and businessman, philanthropist, and approached the task force with an offer. He said to them, whatever it takes, however long it takes, you just send me the bill. He wanted the tree saved. The offer to fund the treatment gave the task force options, choices, alternatives, They reached out to every scientist and tree expert they could come up with brainstorming ideas for things to try. Again, they received many responses that there was simply no way to save the tree. Velpar was meant exactly for the purpose of killing trees, and so much of it had been used there was no chance they could reverse its effects. But the task force persisted in trying. They removed and replaced lots and lots of soil, trying to get the poison soil out Mm -hmm. and put sweet, fresh soil back in. They amputated large sections of the roots that were already full of poison. They installed sunshades to keep direct sun off of the tree to keep it from additional stress. They injected salt solution into the tree in order to move the toxins out of the tissue and cells. And that was somewhat successful, but there was still a lot left in there. They injected sugar into the tree to encourage the tree to produce leaves. They misted the tree canopy with fresh spring water to keep it from stressing and drying out. They pruned half the tree canopy back and removed dead portions. By the time over $100,000 had been spent in efforts to save the tree, two-thirds of it had not survived. The Austin city forester, Gadratus, grew cuttings from the existing tree and planted one near the trunk in case the last third of the existing tree also died. The huge piles of cut branches were set aside. Artists and woodworkers were asked to make things out of the wood so that they could be sold to raise money to plant more trees. One woodworker recreated Sam Houston's chair out of the Treaty Oak wood. A company made 600 Treaty Oak ink pens and gave one to then-Governor George W. Bush. Gavels were made from the wood and sold to local judges and lawyers. They made all kinds of trinkets and little boxes and little souvenirs of every shape and form. Paintings of the tree were framed in wood that was made from the cut branches. People everywhere wanted a piece of the huge, old, dying Treaty Oak tree. 
about $250,000 was raised to commemorate that tree. Wow. Everyone wanted to know who had done this poisoning. Everyone except apparently some members of the Austin Police Department. It was assigned to Sergeant John Jones as a joke. But as he tried to find the culprit, he started getting more media attention and the other investigators started giving him grief. They were playing pranks on him. He found a note on his desk one day that read, I now have a chainsaw. Stop me before I kill again. Signed, Son of Oak. Which is awful, but still kind of... a little funny. A little bit cheeky, but uh, yeah, it was funny, but cheeky and not not very nice. DuPont, the maker of Velpar, provided a $10,000 reward to catch the poisoner. This prompted a call from a woman who gave them a tip. She told them that a guy at her methadone clinic had bragged about poisoning the treaty oak. Paul Cullen was 45 at the time of the poisoning. He was a farm worker and an addict who regularly visited a local methadone clinic and had fallen in love with his methadone counselor. She didn't reciprocate his feelings. Can you believe it? Yeah, that seems totally reasonable. (laughs) So he decided the only way that he could stop loving her was to cast a spell, whereas if he killed something, it would kill his love at the same time. Or at least that was the story that he told at the methadone clinic. So he decided to poison the biggest living thing he could think of, which was the treaty oak. He drenched the ground around the tree with Valpar. A little while after that, he went into his methadone clinic and bragged to his friends there Mm. about this little spell that he tried to cast. The friend later called police, and it turns out that what he was doing was trying to impress the counselor by being some sort of a big shot. Okay, but... He had done this to make his love interest think that he was somebody. But that sounds like not the thought process that a sober person would be doing. Police asked the friend to wear a wire and try to get Cullen to admit the crime on tape. Mm -hmm. So the friend agreed. Cullen came through and admitted it while being recorded. He was arrested in June 1989, interrogated, and indicted. In his trial, there was really no talk about any occult ritual. His lawyer played him off like a lonely loser who was just trying to make his methadone counselor think he was a big shot. Like the rest of the satanic panic, there was no basis in the allegations of the dark arts. Yeah. In 1990, Cullen was convicted and sentenced to nine years for poisoning the Treaty Oak. He never admitted to perpetrating the poisoning. He denied it for the rest of his life. He served about three years in prison, and then he died in 2001 at about age 57. So back to the tree. After the $250,000 had been raised to commemorate the Treaty Oak, because everyone thought it was going to die, Mm -hmm. it began to look as if some of the tree might be able to survive. Two-thirds of it had died off and been removed, but one-third of it remained. New leaves started to grow. Mm -hmm. I know, I'm going to (laughs) probably cry in this section. Each season, it seemed to look less sickly. The Treaty Oak continued to grow and improve in health. Over time, after eight years of its return to health, the tree produced its first post-poisoning crop of acorns in 1997. I mean, that's a sign of vitality if there ever was one. The acorns were gathered, germinated, and spread throughout Texas and several other states. So Texans and Austin residents look at the treaty oak as a symbol of strength, perseverance, and endurance. Mm -hmm. And Austin and all of Texas should be proud of how it rallied to save this glorious piece of themselves and history. But none of it would likely have come together in the amazing way that it did to save her had it not been for H. Ross Perot. He provided the funding that allowed all of the life-saving options that were used. He ran for president in 1992, so three years later, as an independent candidate, and he received almost 19% of the popular vote, which is almost unheard of in the United States. Yeah, that's pretty high. 
He got a bit of a reputation for being a little bit out there, kind of later on, but he did many good things with his philanthropic efforts, including efforts for the benefit of POWs in Vietnam, and he was bestowed with dozens and dozens of honors and awards before his death from leukemia in 2019 at the age of 89. So thanks to Mr. Perot for financing the saving of the Treaty Oak. The Treaty Oak today is not the most perfect aesthetic example of an oak tree, as it was declared to be back in 1927. This lopsided, but this lopsided queen is still majestic in her own right. This tree is a survivor. Mm -hmm. This tree has seen nearly 600 years of history, and it's been rehabilitated and growing like it's new again. The Austin City Forester, Gudredas, says that he hopes people will take the time to visit the Treaty Oak. He wants them to bring their picnics and go up and touch the tree, to touch something that is 600 years old and still living, still breathing, still growing. He says the tree loves it when people come to visit. So come visit. And then go remind everyone that the Austin Treaty Oak is still alive. That's so sweet. I'm so emotional about this tree. It's the... I'm a tree person. Mm -hmm. I love trees. So the Austin Treaty Oak survived. It's different, but it's still there, and it still means just as much as it always did. It's such a creative route to take. I never would have thought to do something like that. But it is very... It's almost like a metaphor in a lot of it. It is. You know, trees, they're the air we breathe. Yeah. When they sentenced him... I didn't put this in here. When they sentenced him, his defense attorney said to the judge, Your Honor, please remember to weigh the importance of a human versus the importance of a tree. Excuse me? It's not like the tree was fighting the human and only one could survive. Exactly. This was a completely unprovoked attack by someone who had nothing to gain from it. Fuck that guy. How do you not see something that's been there for longer than you can even humanly imagine? Yeah. And think, oh, I want to be the guy that destroyed that. It's funny. No, it's not. Once it's gone, we can't get that back. People don't have any respect (laughs) for things that are precious or things that are rare or things that are just meaningful. And Mm -hmm. the fact that this tree survived, Mm -hmm. so many people took strength from that and said, I am fighting this disease. If that tree survived... I can survive. Mm-hmm. So, well, that was a very uplifting story. Mm-hmm. I liked more people in that story than I hated. Yeah, does that make sense? And Courtney and Patrick, if you have not yet been to the Austin Treaty Oak, sense. if you guys have not yet been to the Austin Treaty Oak, please go visit it and put your hands on it and give it my love. Bring us back an acorn. Bring us back <laughs> an acorn because we don't have enough oak trees in our yard. Well, that'd still be cool. <laughs> so, guys, we hope that you will enter our drawing. You will come and find us on Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook at True Crime B&B. And I think that's all we have today. Thank you for being here, crime family. And we will be back on episode 49 next week. That's right. Thank you, guys. Bye. Bye. Tom Keeter, at this time, was 29 years old and had a wife named Nancy, along with two children that lived at home with her. As opposed to him, and he lives out in the garage. (laughs) Sorry, I'm squeaking. You might have to repeat that as soon as I'm done squeaking. Oh, ouch. I thought you were wearing a foster care shirt. I was like, where the fuck did you get that? (laughs) (laughs) Haven't you seen all the foster kids running around in here? Puss. That's the only foster kid I have. She's a foster kid that turned into an adopted kid. She's the foster child from hell. What the fuck is a philanthropist? <laughs> I'm not myself today. I, I just, it's 
saw Sonny in Philadelphia. I have never seen it, actually. This guy went on a blind date, and his friend wrote on his hand, say that you're a philanthropist. And so he read it. He was like, it was all sweaty, and he couldn't read it. He said, I'm a full-on rapist. (laughs) (laughs) Ouch, ouch, ouch. Sorry. Oh, holy shit. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) I think I better start over. Oh, it's so sweet. Over time. (laughs) (laughs) You genuinely meant that, but it sounded so sarcastic. Oh, it's so sweet. (laughs) Oh, God. Okay, no more laughing. No more laughing. Uh, That's because I dropped my head down. Okay. We need to get you a back brace for, like, the next month. Thanks. Glorious piece of themselves. (laughs) This glorious piece of themselves and history. Good job, guys. He wants them to bring their picnic. Picnic. What does he want them to bring? (laughs) Their picnic basket. He wants them to bring their picnic basket. Picnic. God damn it, it's not. I'm putting words in that aren't here. I'm just making this shit up as I go. He wants them to bring their pi- fucking picnic. <laughs> okay, three times fast. Picnic, picnic, picnic. <laughs> I keep trying to add basket. I keep trying to add basket. Oh. There's no basket. I did not type basket. I just said picnic. <laughs> Why am I having so He much wants trouble? people to bring their picnic, not baskets. <laughs> Don't bring a goddamn basket. Put it in a bag. Uh. Throw it in your backpack.